Bo, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us at WeatherTech's Talks Passive House discussion today. So Passive House looks like it could be the next big thing in Australia. While it's relatively a new idea, it's been around in Europe for a couple of decades, uh, originating in Germany in 1992, um, where it's known as Passive House. Uh, it's proved to be a very um, useful means of getting buildings of all types, just not residential, to provide high quality, low energy indoor environments. So if you're thinking of building, designing or living in a passive home, both of our panel panellists today are very reputable in this field. So on this note, I'd like to welcome Andy Marlow, Director of Envirotecture and Passive uh, House Design and Construct in Sydney, and Harley Weston, Managing Director of Solaire Properties in Brisbane. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, we'll get to we'll get started with the questions. So this is for both of you. If you could just tell us a little bit about your background and involvement in passive homes, and what type of passive home projects are you currently working on, huh, uh, Andy? Sure. Uh, okay, so I'm a I'm an architect by training, um, and I got into architecture out of a belief about people should be um, experiencing conditions inside buildings that are basically better than outside buildings. If we're going to build buildings for people, they should be you know they should be he happy, healthy, and efficient. Um, so I was always interested in those aspects of of how buildings come together and how they work. Um, and originally was um, knee deep in passive solar design homes. And in recent years, we've become heavily involved with um, passive house, um, as in the German version of the passive house. Um, and um, really um, our interest evolved um, through some clients for a particular project that we had and, and understanding that, especially in a warming climate, the ability for houses to operate without artificial heating and cooling was becoming increasingly difficult. Um, originally, you know, a few decades ago in Sydney, it was a fairly easy thing to pull off if you knew what you were doing. Um, so we've ended up following Passive House, ending up with um, very deep understanding of building science as a product of that. Um, and we finished last year Sydney's first certified Passive House. We've got another one that just got certified the other week. Um, and we, as of well, a few months ago, we also launched um, this sec sec separate second company called Passive House Design and Construct. So it, um, it's in collaboration with some builders that we know very well. And it's on the premise that in order to get more people into these buildings that work better, that are healthy and don't have mold and all that sort of stuff, um, that we can do it using the design and construct model, so long as we're working with the right builders and we're using the certification process of Passive House as the quality guarantee. Lots of people have concerns over quality assurance in the building industry at the moment, and, um, and therefore we're using, um, we're using certified Passive House as our way to say these things are what they say they will be. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, and at the moment, I'd say four, 30 to 40% of our work is certified Passive House. So from, from zero three years ago, that's a pretty big uptick. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Andy. And um, Harley, what about, what about yourselves? Well, good, uh, good afternoon, everyone that's watching. And uh, thanks, for the text for having us along for this one. Um, my background is actually vastly different to that. And it's actually mineral exploration uh, and geology and uh, basically soil science. 
So uh, for me, that's where I guess where the passion came from uh, to do with science. Um, fortunately, my team are very experienced builders, multi-generational and also um, project, uh, project developers and these types of things. So that's sort of is where we sort of tied together to create Solaire. We actually have the we own a building company and a, a development company. Um, so we set out to build sustainable homes, um, which was looking to drive some change in the building industry in the way that we manage energy, the way that we manage waste, and also doing research and development on behalf of an industry to generate uh, new materials and get the scale of economics in the right place so that, uh, so that it was more profitable for builders and developers to make the right decisions as opposed to going after going after profits. And um, we're into our fifth sort of major project now and uh, we sort of set a benchmark rule that each time we would build a new project, uh, it had to be advancing in some way, shape or form. Uh, and logically, Passive House was pretty well the pinnacle of where you can go with the building. Um, but rather than just do Passive House, uh, we decided to retrofit Passive House to one of Brisbane's uh, number one architects, which was Joe Adset Architects, um, and rather than have a rather than the old model where they're a little bit boxy by nature, more walls than glazing, um, we we basically tried to find the happy medium between a Queenslander uh, architecturally designed house and a passive house, and um, we put it in the inner city ring with uh, amazing city views. Uh, and I guess part of that was just to try and display that uh, a passive house doesn't, or a sustainable house doesn't have to look. Um, it doesn't have to look small and it doesn't have to look uh, like a mud brick house like I normally say. Um, you can actually make these things however you want and um, I guess that's, that's what we're working on now which is which was Vanquish and we also, we're also doing it in a, very, in a subtropical environment. I think in Queensland, uh, Stanthorpe was the only one in Queensland but whoever anyone who knows Queensland knows that Stanthorpe's the coldest place in Queensland whereas um, Passive House in the hotter climates is a whole different ball game so we're demonstrating that. And um, I can talk more about that as we go along. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, great. Thank you, uh, Harley. That's a great overview. Um, just for everyone uh, watching today, please feel free to ask questions uh, through our chat. We do have a lot of people. Um, I think there were over 400 people that registered today. So if we don't answer all your questions, please feel, we'll try our best, but please uh, feel free definitely to email uh, your questions through after the webinar and we'll get back to you. So um, Andy, the next one for you, so for because you're such a specialist and I'm not, what is exactly a passive house? Okay, so uh, a certified passive house has five key elements to it or five key principles that, that underpin it. So um, they're appropriately insulated, which means that that amount of insulation changes depending on your climate, but it's an appropriate amount. So it's an optimization thing. Um, it is a well-sealed building, so it's airtight, and, and airtightness in a certified passive house is 0.6 air changes per hour, which is fairly airtight. Um, the Australian average new home is 15.4, so it's 23 times better than average. Um, there's uh, thermal bridges are minimised in a passive house. Um, it doesn't mean that they need to be eliminated, because that can be quite tricky, but they need to be accounted for, understood and mitigated. Um, so again, it's part of optimising your building to know what to worry about and what not to worry about. Um, they need really good doors and windows um, that need to be appropriately shaded. Um, in all places in Australia, um, overheating is arguably a bigger concern than um, staying warm. Um, and, and therefore you need to get the shading right as well. But we need windows that, are, that contribute to the air tightness so that they can be, when they're closed, they're actually closed and don't leak like a sieve. 
and we need good glazing, which as a minimum is double glazing and depending on where you are, may well be triple glazing. Um, and then the final part is we need reliable ventilation. If we have an airtight building, um, fairly logical question is, well, where do I get my fresh air from? Um, and in order for that to be done reliably, um, a heat recovery ventilation unit or an energy recovery ventilation unit, if it also recovers humidity, um, will, will be needed. And those units um, are a low volume system, so they're very different to ducted aircon. And they, they'll bring in um, about one third of the building volumes uh, per hour um, and distribute that uh, fresh air into living rooms and bedrooms. It'll exhaust that air through um, service areas, so kitchens, bathrooms, um, laundries, um, and as the air leaves, uh, comes in and leaves the building, it passes through the heat recovery ventilation unit and it transfers the outgoing uh, heat energy into the incoming air. So it means that in winter, if your air is leaving at about 20 degrees, the fresh air is coming in at about 19 or 19 and a half. And conversely, in summer, if your air is leaving at 25 degrees and it's 40 odd degrees outside, it means that the air that actually comes into your building is maybe say 26 or 25 and a half. So it means you get fresh air reliably 24 seven without having to open your doors and windows. But if you want to, you can open your doors and windows. <laughs> okay, that's great. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Harley, the next one's for you. So can you tell us the difference between a passive house and a sustainable house? Uh, yep, probably they can, well, a sustainable house isn't always a passive house and a passive house isn't always a sustainable house. I guess um, from a sustainable point of view, sustainability, a passive house is, is a way of making a super comfortable, uh, super clean, clean air inside your home, a great level of uh, insulation, basically everything Andy just said, uh, but it's largely around comfort, uh, efficiency, but mm -hmm. particularly around heating and cooling. Um, whereas a sustainable house, is things that are just is not just not just the passive design, but it's the cladding on the outside. It's it's where you source your timbers from, so you're not getting out of Sumatra, Borneo. Uh, it's where you get your tiles from. Uh, it's you know from our from our perspective, it's recycled, partially recycled uh, tiles. Uh, dealing with companies like Sussex, where you've got a zero waste tap fittings, you've got uh, removing chemicals from your pool. Basically, every everything that you do in that house and every and every part of that house that is. Um, makes up the entire build, has had some sort of uh, thought process put in behind about what its carbon impact is. Um, whereas passive house uh, is just the, it was like the, the last little bit where it comes down to energy efficiency, albeit a major, a major reduction in energy. Uh, sustainability goes right, right the way from what your concrete's made of to what your pool's made of. Yeah, right, okay. Um, and Andy, so what, what are the benefits of passive housing? Um, there's a couple of, in Australia, sorry. Um, funnily enough, they're the same as they are everywhere else in the world because it's really about people and, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a few things. It's comfort. Um, these buildings are designed to sit, um, in a, between 20 and 25 degrees all year round and they will. Um, one of the biggest benefits of Passive House is that you actually get what you think you'll get. So the correlation between what, <clears throat> what the computer modeling says when you're designing these buildings and what actually happens in them is, is incredibly tight. It's the most accurate um, modeling um, correlation in any of the um, certification systems in the world. Um, so the comfort is a huge thing. 
Um, the health is a really big factor as well, um, depending on where you live um, and depending on your climate. Um, lots of homes in Australia um, and other places too have big issues with condensation and mold. Um, passive houses do not have that because of the rigor of the design process and the quality assurance that goes with the buildings. So not having, you know, childhood asthma is a fairly big upside. Um, they also happen to be very energy efficient. Um, and for some people that's incredibly important. Many other people don't care. Um, but regardless, they are, and it turns out that in order to deliver a building that is actually healthy and comfortable, the only sensible way to do it, or the only reliable way to be able to do it, is for it to actually be energy efficient. And I guess one of the key things was with the sustainable home component of all of this is it's, there's many definitions of sustainable and everybody's is different, like there's the definition, but most people have their own version. Um, so Passive House only, focuses on the things it does. So energy use for heating and cooling and for, for electricity generally, it's agnostic on everything else. So like Harley said, you can use whatever timber you like in a passive house, there's no rules. Um, and that, you know, you can criticize that if you wish, but it also doesn't prevent you doing, doing better things. But the one thing that it does do that in the sustainable world, in sustainable design world is incredibly important is it means that when you're delivering a net zero or, or net zero ready building, that you're also delivering comfort. So one of the massive dangers that's occurring at the moment is people want net zero buildings. A net zero building can be a terrible building with a very large PV system on the roof. So it depends what you're trying to achieve. So if, you, if you're interested in the comfort and the health aspects as well, then having, um, having a passive house as your, as your base case for, for thermal performance is certainly a real smart way to go. Fantastic. I've just got a question here, uh, Andy, from Stephen. So my home was built in 2017. And as I know, most basic homes are built without sealing around the windows. Um, how would I go about improving thermal efficiency without ripping up my new home? So uh, I think he's asking about retrofitting. Um, it depends. It's a hard question to answer without knowing exactly how it was built. Um, right. It is possible, um, but inherently, if you need to insulate or insert something inside a, a space that is closed, by pretty much by default, you have to be able to remove one side or the other to get to it. Um, there's ways to do it sensibly and practically, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I can't answer off the top of my head. No, okay, that's fine. And another one, um, could you possibly provide uh, some more information around traditional principles and importance of internal thermal mass and how the German passive house considers this matter with their scorecards, etc. Um, for people who are schooled in traditional passive solar design, this is quite confronting and it took me a long time to kind of come to acceptance with this. Um, thermal mass in most climates in Australia is still beneficial in a passive house. It is not necessary. Um, and that's really hard to get, get to accept. Um, and it contradicts the Natter's system in how that rates buildings with th the use of thermal mass to some degree. Um, the, how does it deal with it? It very simply has one single number that represents thermal mass. Um, so depending on how heavy, thermally heavy your building is, you enter one number and that's it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a big simplification. It's partly because of how the modeling works, which I'm happy to go into. But I mean, the, the quick answer is, it considers the entire building as one zone. 
It doesn't care about your internal partitions because they begin from the basis that you wish for your building to be comfortable and healthy and therefore it will be the same temperature throughout the building because you want it to be comfortable and healthy in all of the rooms, not just some of the rooms. So because it comes from that sort of bait from that starting point, then um, there's a lot of sim simplicity that gets built into it, which is very robust. Hmm, interesting. Thank you. So Harley, what do you think are the main challenges around passive housing in Australia? Uh, to be fair, it's, it's definitely in its infancy uh, in, in some ways. Uh, this is probably the first time I've seen this many participants are uh, curious around passive house. Um, uh, there's definitely, definitely part of it might be because some people still get it mixed up in their head between passive design and passive house. They're vastly, vastly different things. The passive, as Andy alluded to, the, the uh, passive house principles and the PHPP is the most uh, scrutinising, highly developed um, model of how to build a, build a building that, that I think is on, on the planet. Um, there is partly, there's a, a lack of um, potential suppliers that know how to build them. Uh, there's always the agile one from a developer's perspective, which is the cost uh, and the return on investment or your margins being shaved. Uh, and again, secondly, I think it's because it's in its infancy, uh, it hasn't taken a huge amount of traction yet. And uh, the government hasn't really got behind any of it. Even from ourselves as a, as a developer, we we're pretty well, um, you're pretty well not uh, uh, eligible for any sort of government grants or funding at the moment just because we sit under the property development banner. So that, that's been a big challenge for us is to, uh, most of the money gets absorbed up in the big commercial arrangements with the, with the bigger players. And, uh, I think that's definitely been part of it. Yeah, that's okay. Well, hopefully we'll get some support in this space soon. Um, there's a, the questions are rolling in, which is fantastic. So I've got Bert here from Gorta Hatches. Does a roof hatch need to have a thermal break? Anyone? <laughs> not if it's, not if it's, uh, depends if the roof hatch is part of the actual envelope and then, yeah. the, and then the gap between there and the ceiling, provided there's no, uh, there's no conduit between the thermal hatch and the outside environment then technically it doesn't need a thermal break, but Andy, you're, you can... Um, not knowing what Gorta make, if it's a hatch I think of, uh, probably yes, um, but it just depends on the exact profile of, of what you've got. It, it's, it's treated in the same way that a door or a window would be, so it's a glazed element stuck in, a, in, a, in, a, in an opaque surface, in this case a roof, um, so you have to model it to work it out. But um, if it's just a standard, fairly standard extrusion of aluminium or steel, then yes. And the, the main reason for this in, Australia, in the Australian context is um, thermally unbroken, so standard aluminium windows, for example, um, they leak a whole bunch of energy because aluminium is a fantastic conductor of heat, which is exactly what you don't really want in a door or a window. Um, but the thing that actually makes it um, more problematic is our climate's fairly helpful to us in, in many ways, but the thing that drives the, um, the complexity around thermal bridges with doors and windows is around the internal surface temperature of that piece of aluminium or whatever it may be. And that's about not causing condensation inside the building. Um, so it's really, it drives home that it's all about the comfort and the health aspect much more than the energy part. Oh, fantastic. Now I've got a very uh, pertinent question here from Paul Rosen. So given the current pandemic, is there an opportunity um, to develop 
passive housing for residential aged care facilities that are suitable, uh, isolated with a negative pressure and medical isolation? Um, yeah, there's a huge opportunity, regardless of the pandemic, to design better buildings for humans. Um, it's not always <laughs> taken up, but um, I see your point. Um, the ventilation in a passive house is a balanced system, so it puts in pretty much exactly as it as much as it takes out. So the concept of the negative of, of the pressurization, uh, you could rig it that way, I suppose. But because you're not you're not recirculating air, um, you don't. In my understanding, I'm not a mechanical engineer. You wouldn't need to. It's been yeah. interesting. The advice out of all that HVAC engineers in North America and Europe is you shouldn't use recirculated air in buildings anymore. And everybody's freaked out because all the commercial buildings were designed to use recirculated air. So they're kind of saying, well, if we follow your advice, we can't operate our building. Um, so the passive-based people are going, we can help. We've got an answer for that. Um, so. Further to that, um, it's, I, I, did, I definitely looked into it uh, with the filter elements that go inside the HRV, the ERV. Um, and you can get that down to a HEPA type level, provided that you've got a small enough airflow but again, as Andy said, there's no benefit because if you go, particularly in this COVID-19 situation, if someone goes inside with the virus, it doesn't matter whether you're inside or you're outside, but definitely um, better performing buildings will keep a lot of other impurifications uh, out of the building. But as far as COVID-19, once you're inside, you're inside. You, you, yeah, you, you sure. can filter it within the building through like purification units internally, but uh, yeah, not overly. Yeah, sure. And uh, Andy, uh, just talking about, are there any misconceptions in the market about passive housing? And I think I had a question before, and you did touch on it uh, earlier. It was about, um, does passive house design increase uh, indoor mould? So I think you touched on it a couple of questions ago. I did. Uh, no, it's the complete opposite. Um, yeah. A certified passive house, so being mindful that lots of people will claim to design to passive house principles, I don't know what that means. If you can let me know, that'd be great. Um, but a certified passive house has been modelled. It's been quality assured by both the person who designed it plus a, an independent third-party certifier. And they will not give you mould at all. And the main reason they won't is because they have a reliable ventilation system installed. So that's your, that's your source of fresh air. Um, or sorry, or at filtered outdoor air. So depending on how fresh it is, depends on what comes in, obviously, and there's filters and there's different grades of filters. Uh, we're recently working on some new, on a slightly new configuration so that we can insert a hardcore filter for when the bushfires come back. Um, yeah. As everyone experienced, pretty much everybody experienced this summer, like the, the air quality problems, even if like me, you were hundreds of cases from an actual fire. Um, so, um, yeah, so you can filter out all of that stuff. So indoor air quality is, is awesome in these things. Uh, it's better than in anything else at all. And for anyone who's unsure, I'd um, advocate for getting yourself inside a passive house. It's the only way to tell. At the moment, obviously that's a bit tricky. Um, but there is an apartment building in Redfern in Sydney that once you're allowed to you know, leave your house um, is well worth a go because you can stay there and sleep the night and see what it feels like. So look, sure. misconceptions. Um, the other one that's really common is the one about, uh, I, what, it's an airtight box. I don't, you know, I can't open my windows. Uh, yes, you can. Um, it's up to you whether you open them. Um, where I am today, it's not that nice outside. So, I, you know, you might not want to open them, but that's fine. If you open them and it's minus four degrees, you'll get cold. It's a house. <laughs> it's not a miracle. 
um, and therefore, um, you know, there's some sense, logic needs to be applied. Um, but that's probably the big one. The other big one is cost. And at the moment, it really depends what you compare it to. We've written a paper that's on the Envirotecture website called What's It Worth? And basically, based on some real data from real projects, uh, we worked out that it costs about the same to build, a, cost, actually cost in this case slightly less, to build a certified passive house um, than it did to build the same building as a um, passive solar home. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a custom design house in Sydney. So when you're comparing custom design, it's really cost effective. If you're trying to compare it to a project home, obviously that's a different kettle of fish. Okay, so I've just got uh, another uh, interesting question here from Darren Bow Bowman. So can the principles of building science be successfully adopted to achieve a similar result without uh, the passive house standard? Uh, it depends exactly what you mean by that, but passive house is based on building science and therefore mm. if you use all of them, yes. Reading between the lines to what I think Darren might be asking, um, there are five basic principles to passive house. You cannot pick three of them, do them well, and expect to get a good result. It is sure. a holistic approach. And this is when I had a, you know, mentioned passive house principles before. This is one of the risks of not having the certification process is that you don't know what you're getting. You could get a really good result, but you don't know. And from a client point of view, from a customer focus point of view, one of the wonderful things about a certified passive house is you literally get a plaque to stick on the house that says, this building works. And yeah. um, Harley made the point about, um, about sort of the development market. One of the biggest challenges at the moment is trying to put a value on a certified passive house. Um, no one sells them. It's like really good sustainable homes. People who buy them never sell them because they don't have anywhere else good to move. So yeah. the data to support the fact that they're worth more is all is going to be thin on the ground for at least a decade, I'd suggest. Yeah, sure, sure. So Harley, if a customer is interested in building a passive home, what should they look for when selecting a builder slash designer? Uh, do your homework, I guess, in some ways. Obviously, finding a block of land uh, that's suitable is always a good start. Um, having something that just this age-old, find something that uh, doesn't doesn't face due west is, is a great way to is a great place to start. Uh, secondly, uh, most of at this stage, most of the uh, builders, designers, and developers are in the south uh, because it's more it's definitely more suited to the uh, to the colder climates. Um, and again, to take your time. I haven't seen anybody that's in the passive house design or building market that uh, that isn't suitable to be there. Whereas you see a lot of in the, in the domestic market, there's quite a lot of builders and designers that should not be in the industry. However, when you move into the sustainable side of things and the uh, passive house side of things, you quite often come across uh, academics, experts, industry leaders, and these types of things. Uh, so I'd be, I'd just be, I'd do your homework and then I'll jump jumping back to Andy's previous question. Um, I don't disagree with um, passive house principles, um, but uh, I certainly wouldn't go out to try and build a house that was close to being passive house. And certainly, we didn't. Um, certification was the only was the only option, and as high as we the highest level of certification that we could get was also the target. However, having a house that that doesn't have drafts is is a, is a great start, and um, 
having good glazing and good insulation, which is like what like the government's uh, insulation scheme and those types of things. Where if that's all, if you've only got ten grand to spend, um, because that's the way your life is, and insulate your roof, sort of thing. It's not a, I wouldn't call it a passive house principle, but you're not gonna. There's nothing wrong with starting with one thing if you don't have the time, effort, or resources to, to go full PHPP because it is a it is a labour of love, um, and it's and there's a, and it's quite detailed. Oh, fantastic. So, um, Andy, just talking about affordability again, um, I've got a question from Ben Hines. So what, are, what about costs? Building a passive um, house would be pricier than a building a conventional home, of course. Uh, um, are the calculations, are there calculations uh, after many years, the higher costs have been um, by saving energy costs? Like, so does that counteract, do you think? Um, it makes a difference. Um, for sure, they will use less energy than a, well, than a code compliant house for, for heating and cooling at least. Um, the cost, um, the cost, the pre cost premium, which is normally what people are, are trying to understand, um, varies wildly because it always depends on your, what your base, what your base case assumption is. Um, where there's better evidence, so overseas where they've been building these things for longer, um, in the UK, they build their passive house schools for less than they build code compliance schools. Um, the Passive House Trust, which is the UK version of the Australian Passive House Association, recently redid their number crunching, and they reckon that Passive House has a premium of about 3%. This is in terms of construction costs, and it's before you flow through to the energy savings that come from it. Energy savings are a bit of a slightly problematic in some ways in that, while everybody gets very excited about the cost of energy, um, in Australia, it's still actually fairly cheap. Um, and therefore, if you're only driven by energy costs, then you probably wouldn't build a passive house. You'd just put a large PV system on the roof. Because if you're only interested in money, that's where the money is. But if you want your kids to be healthy, then that's a different conversation. I'll add to, I'll add to that, Felice, and sure. I, totally, I, I totally support what Andy said there. Uh, it depends on what you value. Uh, if you value health, um, you know, we, in our last couple of houses, uh, the, the main key driver behind the sale was uh, hypersensitive children. Um, these types of things, childhood asthma, allergies, uh, being able to fil filter pollen out of your air. If that's what's valuable to you, that's, then, then the cost is not a, not, not, a, not a problem. However, from our perspective, uh, the current build that we're building has been um, probably around 10%, but that's largely because it was a retrofit, it's highly architectural, it's a different end of the market. But I'd, I'd be targeting to try and get the cost of building a passive house, whether it's through CLs, like cross-laminated timbers, scale of economics, working with uh, guys like Andy, um, down to around 5%. But uh, one thing we can be sure of is that uh, after speaking with Andy last week, we're, we're both actively working towards bringing that. We want to get that cost of having a passive house versus a normal house on par, if not better, because then even in the long run, then you, your, your energy gains and all that type of stuff will, over its lifetime will be a longer lasting and a, and a more affordable house. And that's, that's where we have to go. So, I'm glad I'm, not, I'm glad there's a lot of other people starting to really start to chew into this. Yeah, great. So that leads on to the next question um, for either of you. Um, so what can we do as designers to push the government to support uh, Passive House? I think that arguing about uh, global warming is pointless unless we go beyond the basic six-star requirement. And that's from uh, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Um, I can talk a little, so I'm also, I wasn't in my bio, but I'm also on the board of the Australian Passive House Association, which is the not-for-profit that represents Passive House here in Australia. 
um, so through that um, entity, we are um, engaged with the um, Building Codes Board. Um, at the moment, they're rewriting um, the National Construction Code for a single resi for 2022. It'll be the first mm. time it's been updated in a meaningful way in about a decade, um, which is incredibly sad and depressing when you really think about it. Um, but anyway, we're um, attempting to get Passive House as into that as possible. Um, how do we really get government on board? I'm unsure. Um, I'm not very good at politics, so I've chosen to focus on just building the things. Um, we're, I'm going for more of a, you know, build it and they will come um, attitude. Um, but there are others who are lobbying very hard. Um, there's some very good positive moves um, through the social housing sector, especially in Victoria. Um, lots of government entities, not necessarily government in terms of politicians, um, recognise that they own buildings for a very long time and they're kind of fed up with owning lemons. Um, so they're looking at building some fairly cool stuff, um, the Passive House Standard. So I think we'll see change come that way. Um, without getting too political, um, I don't see either sides of politics getting particularly adventurous at the moment. It's not the way the world is structured, although they just spend $130 billion on something you'd never thought they would. Um, so look, unless they do something like that with housing quality and change the dynamic about how housing works, I don't see it happening from government, but just build it, make it happen, and they will follow. Cool. I'd support yeah, what that. Build, think, build, it, build it and they will come. And I, I think the, one of the big things we need is to get people in passive homes so they can, like, once you go inside and you close the doors, you, just, you know you're in a know you're in a passive house because it's quiet it's, it's comfortable it's like even now it's just started to cool off up here when i say cool off for a queenslander it's down to about 15 degrees um which is quite cool um and you can go in there in the morning and it's like cool. even when you stand upstairs and the warm air comes out of the hot uh, comes out of the out of the doors you know uh, you know it's quite good one of the things that we're doing um again i'm not highly political but i definitely do some lobbying and try and come up with statistics so we're collaborating now with a couple of universities. Anybody who is listening, uh, we're, we're just launching now. We've got two, we've got the Vanquish project, which we're building right now, uh, and Lafleur, which is our previous house. Both sustainable homes, both, uh, both with the large battery systems and solar systems, uh, relatively exactly the same materials built within 12 months. Uh, and one's passive house and one isn't. So we're gonna be loading those up with sensors, uh, loading those up with the same modeling so that we can measure them at occupied for 12 months and come up with some university backed or PhD backed uh, statistics so that we've got something that we can give to the Australian Passive House Association. We can test our 23 degrees, uh, the 25 degrees latitude, uh, something that's tangible and uh, that we can that's to sort of start to form up a process of uh, validating the Passive House uh, principles. Oh, fantastic. So, Harley, uh, which leads on to the next question. So, what are some of the important factors when selecting uh, materials to be used on a passive home? Um, for us, uh, for us, is quality. So, um, uh, when it comes to the actual passive side of things, it's, uh, it's quality. So, the Pro Climber is definitely one of the leaders, and I believe there's a several other brands out there that I, I can't speak to. But uh, quality around... Um, you can't really shortcut a passive house. You have to, if you're going to go for certification, don't mess around with it. Go the whole hog, otherwise it just doesn't doesn't work like that. Uh, but when it comes to materials for us, we think about the total uh, where that where that product originally came from. So, Merbau, for example, Merbau, which you buy from Bunnings, is, is a timber that just wipes out forests in uh, in um, Malaysia, Borneo, Sumatra, Indonesia, these types of places, which is which is not okay. Um, and also just embedded carbon. So what's what's in the material 
how much steel are you using, how much can be recycled, like how much can you, uh, rather than try and just recycle your waste, what can you um, prevent from actually using in the first place? And that just comes down to uh, sourcing materials from different suppliers and also, much the same as we do, supporting companies that are trying to break out from the old ways. Um, and, even, and even now we're doing uh, multiple NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements and, and collaborations with universities and other companies to get to get these new products. WeatherText is a perfect example. Uh, Weather, Weather Groove, uh, which we use on, uh, we used two WeatherText products on our house and that was, that was particularly to move away from one of your major competitors, I won't mention any names, um, but largely because it was a all timber, all natural product that was recyclable, it was innovative, it, it makes sense. Um, so mainly just uh, where it comes from and, and just thinking about how much carbon are we using? We gotta work out, if we wanna go NZB, uh, net, net zero, we have to work out where we fit in that. So over 25 years, we start to at least come up neutral. Yeah, thanks, Harley. And that, that, that leads me to uh, now to my opportunity to give WeatherTech a plug, which um, and the reasons, some of the reasons why you chose to use us, Harley, especially the 97% eucalyptus hardwoods, 3% paraffin wax, no glues, resins, binders, silicas, anything like that. And as you know, we have our carbon negative uh, footprint and we are PFC certified uh, and we're sustainably uh, harvest uh, as well. And we've also got uh, green tag credentials as well. Um, being WeatherTex was the first Australian and global manufacturer to, to receive a um, green tag platinum certification uh, for our natural range and a gold on our prime range. So um, we also have an EPD, um, environmental product declaration and, and a product health declaration as well. So yeah, we really appreciate uh, your support um, with that on, um, on, on your latest project. So just look, we've got some heap of questions coming through. So one for you, Andy, um, what construction system is used mostly in your projects? For example, SIP panels. Um, we don't have a single answer to that. We've got a few. Right. Um, what I can yeah. say is that all of our structural systems are uh, timber based. Um, and then we've got, we've used a couple of different wall build-ups so far. Um, the first, so we've got two certified projects and a third under construction. Um, they've all been built on site. Um, one had the frames come out of a factory and the others were built entirely on site. Um, our next couple of projects are panelized. So they're coming um, from a very lovely bloke in Melbourne who makes a very, he makes the only certified um, passive house component system in Australia actually. Um, so they're called panel light um, and that's just an insulated timber frame. Um, so we've used both of those. There's a CLT one under construction in Tasmania at the moment, who one of the ex-board members of AFA is, is building, and that's a, a oh, great one. So look, to be honest, Passive House is fairly agnostic, as long as they work. Um, we find, we, we choose timber because we like timber, it's renewable, it's, it's sustainable, as long as it's harvested properly, it's easy to work with. So. Yes. Fantastic. And one of the other questions that came in a little bit earlier were how many, or do you know of, how many certified passive homes are in Australia to date? Uh, there's about 23 projects certified at this point in time. Um, and that includes um, the Fern in, Red, in Sydney, which is 11 units. So it depends whether you count mm -hmm. dwellings or buildings or projects. Um, and also the Monash University Student Accommodation Building, which is 162 bed student accommodation so it's effectively 160 152 studio apartments so 
Right. No, it's, definitely, it's definitely grown a Sorry. lot of the last. Uh, it's definitely grown a lot of the last twelve months from when we started. I think uh, oh. when we started, we were the largest residential home, uh, and I think by now there's a couple of the number of them down south that have taken off. I think it's almost doubled in the last twelve months. Yeah, about that. There's about well, last time we AFA did the survey, there's there's north of a thousand um, project of oh, thousand dwellings on the books. I mean, there's some in the social housing stuff in Victoria. Some of those projects alone are 400 apartments. Um, and how about uh, another interesting question here, just looking a little bit uh, outside the square. Can you use uh, or design passive homes for small buildings, like, for example, 60 square metre uh, granny flat, uh, mod modular, all that Perfect. sort of thing? Oh, that's, that's a golden question. Um, let me change my background. Um, this is our second certified project um which is sort of behind me um it's a 60 square meter granny flat um yes you can there's no limits on what you can really do it's harder with smaller buildings because they've got a greater surface area to volume ratio um one of the easiest things you can do is make your building bigger um because it just your energy flows through your thermal envelope so the more you've got inside the thermal envelope the easier that that becomes to manage um that is not advocacy for building bigger buildings for the sake of it. Um, but it is safe to say that the small ones are tricky. Okay, fantastic. Um, one for you, Harley, this is a quite a lengthy question. Are you able to elaborate further on your comment regarding property developers' concerns with additional costs associated with passive house design, homes versus revenue from sale of the home? Um, as a small residential home developer, we're committed to in introducing some of these elements into our builds. We've had these concerns, however, are committed to this type of development. Would like to know uh, what Solaire have experienced with these previous sales. And that's uh, from Liam Hayes. Thanks, Liam. Um, it seems like we're both on the same page. Uh, my, my commentary was largely around the build for investors type model, which we all would have seen. Um, I need to mention any names out there, but it, that's largely where we're building. We're building houses that are that uh, barely have any insulation in it, or there's one LED in a in a bathroom, or it's just um, built as cheap as possible so that they maintain some margins. Um, our go our goal, which may be similar to yours, was to uh, was to basically spend uh, was to choose high profile suburbs with good city views um, that had a better margin, so that we could use that entire margin basically to do. Uh, research and development, and that's that's basically what we've done here with the with the Vanquish project is absorb any of those profits into really starting to test different battery systems, uh, you know, different heat pumps, and, and get get as advanced as we can. And I guess um, to go back to why people wouldn't choose it is one, if you if you haven't got a builder who knows how to build a passive house, then it becomes a fairly scary thing to try and take on, and um, and and it's do you have enough time, resources, capital and commitment to wait until the extra 10% you spend on a building, you get back in your in your sale price. And, and so far it's been it's been it's been slow coming. We've built uh, four houses and broken four street records. Um, two times we've broken the street record by over a million. Um, however, that's not affordable for the masses, but um, that's how we had to, that's where we chose to manage our risks. Um, but yeah, we're still yet to see we still yet to see that shift, and then for us, we anticipate that to be in around uh, thirty, in around another two and a half to three years, depending how many crazy climate events we have between now and then. Okay, great. The other, the other thing Sorry. to add in to that is on the finance side in particular. 
um, Bank Australia released their um, loan, um, it's a green loan, I forget the phrase they've used, um, which is backed by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So it's giving people a fairly hefty discount for five years on your interest rate. So um, when we, we crunch the numbers on what that means, and over the life of a loan, it, mean, it can mean up to about 130 grand saving on a $800,000 home. So that's not gonna go to the developer, but it's acknowledgement by the finance sector that better buildings lead to better outcomes. So um, Bank Australia are kind of leading the way on that front and the others will follow because that's what followers do. Okay, wow, there's some fantastic questions coming through. Just another one. Um, so beyond passive design, why don't, why don't we build active houses where sensors, forecasts, fee computers that rotate louvers, slide panels, open vents or other techniques? Have you thought of? Oh, yeah, we've, we've thought of and we've designed some of those things over the years. Um, why don't we? Um, we can. Um, I guess the question is, why would you? Um, basically, we can make buildings work generally without all of those things. And it really, to be blunt, comes down to cost. It's really cool when stuff moves, but everything that sure. moves needs something to make it move. And a lot of these things have a history of not working very well. So um, that's kind of why it's not common, to be honest. Um, there's no technical reason it can't happen, but it generally comes down to dollars. I agree. I agree. We, we, build, we build definitely some of the most technologically advanced homes. Uh, I can, uh, I've definitely looked at my energy usage. I can turn lights on and off or do whatever. From, I've, I've tested it from Mexico, from a sailing boat in Greenland. But again, to Andy's comments, sometimes if it moves, it breaks. Um, and the human body's got this amazing device on the end of its hand that can open and close windows with when, it, when the sensors on its skin feel warm. I think when you, when, you, when you want to use thermal chimneys, when you've got high ceilings and those types of things, that's when it's great. But uh, with uh, thermostats, and they're, they're, they're very problematic. The technology is, is developing, but I think um, and we wire our houses sometimes for those additional features so that people don't have to go back behind walls. However, um, to in line with what Andy said, sometimes you don't have to. If you get the house just right, then you can really start to reduce the amount of uh, technological backup you need in a house. Okay, there's a couple of interesting questions here that have come through about health and well-being. So, uh, has there been any research that you know of uh, into the benefits of health and well-being of the community and resulting financial uh, benefits to individuals, families and communities? And also with that, are there any psychodynamic guidelines contained in passive house, such as designed for people with mental health issues? Um, on the first part, there's a yeah. large amount of peer-reviewed research on um, indoor air quality in passive houses. Um, and it's all fairly positive, um, unsurprising. Um, there is, I'm not aware of anything about um, health costs at an individual level. Um, there was some research, and I'm not sure how academic it was, um, in the UK, which was looking at savings to the health system. Um, so one of the angles for government is, if you build better buildings, you'll save money through the health system. Um, getting government to connect that many dots is tricky, it turns out. Um, but there is evidence that there is an overall health benefit at that level. As to mental illness, um, no. Um, Passive House basically defines indoor comfort in terms of, it does have a requirement around um, acoustics. Um, so they can't be noisy, which is important with a ventilation system. Um, but aside from acoustic 
stuff and um, temperature and humidity. No, it's, it's agnostic. It doesn't mean you can't, but there's no rules around what you have to do. Yeah, sure, sure. So just another question. They're coming through thick and fast as well. Um, actually, yeah, so how does one become a Passive House certifier and what's involved in the qualification? Um, to become looks a like, Passive... Sorry. Sorry. I was no, going to no. say, it looks like you've inspired someone. That's David, actually. Um, you, um, you need to contact the Passive House Institute in Germany. So they accredit the certifiers. There's about 100 globally. Um, there's two in Australia and one in New Zealand. Um, and um, I've not done it, so I can't tell you what's involved, but you need a fairly awesome level of understanding about um, building physics. Most of them, all of the ones I know, I know about six or seven of them, I think, um, they all have an engineering background rather than an architecture background. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite technical. Um, and there'll be a few hoops to jump through. But um, the Passive House Institute website, the German in Germany is the place to start. And if you need help, get in touch and I can hook you up with the right people. Sure, sure. And another question here from um, either of you, is overheating due to uh, insulation an issue with Passive House? I think, I think we'll be, we're gonna, we're gonna test that one because um, as far as I'm aware, besides mm. uh, China, we're pretty well, we're pretty well building in uh, in one of the hottest climates. We're only just south of the Tropic of Capricorn, so uh, we're yet to test that. Uh, and probably one thing I should allude to: this is the first. Uh, this is even though I consider what we're building to be the most advanced home built on the soil, not just because of the passive house, but all the additional features. Um, so far, so far it feels like it's going to work. But then the good thing is, and again, Andy said, this model you can't really mess with. So this, when you, someone's done enough science on the model and, you, and you, you're looking at thermal bridges and, and you're doing all the calculations, it's so, it's so um, detailed that uh, yes, it should work. And the good thing about insulation is it insulates from heat as well as it insulates from cold. So uh, technically speaking, it should, technically speaking, it should work and, and we're, we're confident that it will work. And, and, and even when it comes to the heating and cooling, because of how well it is insulated and, and how well it manages the ventilation within the home, if you are to add a heating or cooling load, it should be, it should be around about 10% of what would normally be required and you lose none of it. Okay, did you want to add to that, Andy? Um, only really to add on that um, it'll, and this is the same for uh, Harley's place as it is for all the others, um, it'll it'll overheat exactly as much as the model says it will. Um, mm -hmm. So these buildings aren't gonna necessarily not overheat. So in, in Sydney, for example, um, all of them have a degree of overheating um, and we manage that through changing the design um, to a point, but then also by using a, an efficient cooling device to keep it cool. So it's not like passive solar, it's not, well, unlike passive solar, it's not saying you won't need heating or cooling, it's saying that you will achieve this level of comfort by using this amount of energy to, to achieve that. So it's important to understand that it's not getting rid of that. Um, and look, yeah, so to answer the actual question, yes, it will overheat exactly as much as it said it would, but if it's designed and built as it should be, then um, your, um, your air conditioner or whatever cooling device you've used will deliver exactly what it said it will and you'll be comfortable. Oh, sure. And I, and I think that's important for people to remember is that just because it's airtight doesn't mean that it is stuffy because your air still moves around. 
Uh, and it's designed to be between 20 and 25 or around about 23. But it still needs heating and cooling, but it's just been drastically reduced. Here in Queensland, we also put in a, a humidifier, dehumidifier, so that they can talk with the ERV so that when we get our summers, which are, which are super uh, muggy and uh, you get lots of condensation, sometimes humidity is 100%, often sits around 80, and we can start to dry that out and create a, a nice indoor, indoor temperature. But again, as Andy said, you turn everything off and leave it in the sun, it's like anything, it's going to, an esky will get hot inside um, if you leave it in the sun. But if you put a little bit of ice in there, it'll stay cooler for a much longer period of time. Great analogy, Harley. Well done. So this one's from Tommy Struger. So window supplies charge large premium for thermally broken windows and doors. So how can these costs be reduced? Um, More people need to buy them so we can get the scale of economics get, down. Get the make, price Make them in Australia. <laughs> of course. So, yes, absolutely. I'll say a couple of things. Um, for all of our certified projects, we've imported the windows. Um, you can poo-poo that from a sustainability point of view, and, I, and I'm very familiar with those arguments. Um, however, we take the attitude that if someone can produce these things cost-effectively somewhere else, then we'll buy them. And to our local suppliers, we basically say, well, look, you get your act together and we'll buy your product. Um, so yes, um, you can get stuff imported and that works fairly well. Um, the local stuff just so far for us hasn't cut it on a, on a cost for performance basis. Um, we'd like to see that change. We'd much prefer to buy local. It would be easier on all levels. We, yeah, ended, we, ended, up, we ended up pricing. Uh, unfortunately, our window package, because we had a 60 to 40% glazing, so significant amounts of glazing, which is not your standard type model, but um, because it's architectural and, it's, and, we're, and we're in Queensland where we have the Queensland type home, we actually have sliding doors on three, three sides up to 30 metres worth of glass that so can slide back to big sliding panels that are outside, um, to get our values to meet the PHPP, we actually had to go to a triple glazing argon filled uh, low emissivity glass, which was fairly substantial. And we priced up um, four or five locations, uh, mostly out of Europe, um, which, were, which were probably what you would consider to be the best quality. And price for price, um, I think we may have even been able to get them cheaper out of Germany, or I'd have to ask one of my partners. However, the lead times, I think, were, were, too, were too far out. So again, I'm, not, again, I'm with Andy, nothing wrong with him, not, nothing wrong with importing because these people are actually experts um, at, at building them. We got ours made in Australia, but um, again, Australia is a very expensive place to get things done. And hopefully uh, with the world's current events, we uh, get our act together a little bit better. And, um, and again, as it comes online, hopefully we can support them and try and get that scale of economics to make this more affordable. Yeah. The one thing other, I just remembered to add, um, your point, Harley, about, you know, just if you buy them, then more people will buy them and they will become cheaper. Um, when we first, our first project, we used triple glazed windows. We didn't need to. Um, so I got the quote back from the guy who I know, and it, I saw triple glazing and I saw the price and I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. But um, I rang him up. I was like, I don't really need the triple glazing. Like, take that out. I'll save a few grand. Client will be happy. Building will still work. We'll be fine. I get a phone call the next day. Uh, we can. But that's a special order. What do you mean? He says, well, they don't make double glazing anymore. So if you want it, we can get it, but they'll charge you more than for the triple. So because their market demands triple glazing, it's the most cost-effective thing because our market does not demands crap aluminium windows. They're the cheapest thing. That can change if enough people put their money where their mouth is. Yep. 
Yeah, fantastic. And here, look, here's another uh, interesting question. This is from Paul Rosen again. Are there any earth integrated passive houses built here or overseas? That kind of reminds me of the dugouts in, that you see in Cooper Pedy that are 24 degree all year round because they're closed up. The, one of the very first ones, which there's almost nothing available on in terms of information, is in a place called Oak Flats in South Australia. And I'm fairly sure that that's like a sort of bermed into the side of the earth. Um, you certainly can do it. There's like passive house is that doesn't really care. As long as it works, you can do it whichever way you like. Um, but that's the only one I'm aware of. Um, one of Sven Max's projects in Victoria, I think is partially integrated into the ground, but I'm not sure. I know he's got a lovely green roof on it. Um, but yeah, that's all I can say. You could, as long as it's airtight and waterproof, it's definitely on my cards sometime in my life to build one, whether it's for myself or just for a project to have some fun. But uh, depending on where you are, but either way, I think a thermal mass would be highly advantageous. Depending on how much you've buried, you might get a little bit of ground stability. Uh, you might get a little bit of temperature stability just from the ground. But again, it'll just be factored into the model. So it'll have to be offset left or right. It depends on your climate. Sometimes the, the earth connection is actually problematic. So it, sure. it's tricky, but yeah, can be done. Fantastic. So I guess uh, we're nearly coming towards the end of the hour, but just uh, another question. So how does Australia compare to the rest of the world, in your opinion, um, when it comes to passive house uh, building uh, and design? And, and how do you think we're looking for the future? Um, if, if you mean, how do we, how do we compare in terms of how many we've built versus how many others? Uh, we are, we are at the closer to the beginning of the curve. Um, where do I think we'll be? I like to think we'll do what the, um, British Columbians have done. Um, they have made huge leaps and bounds in a really short period of time because partly they have a different political structure, but they have through their city governments basically rewarded and um, incentivized passive house, not through dollars per se, but through policy. Um, and they are now building almost all of their new big tall apartment towers in Vancouver are, are going certified passive house. All their wow. medium density stuff is. Um, they've incentivized it in a really clever way that hasn't cost them any money at all, but it means they'll get a great outcome. I'd like to think that we'll do that. Wow, sounds fantastic. So just summing up, um, are there any last uh, comments um, that, that you'd like to um, talk about before before we wrap it up today? Are we? Um, I, firstly, it's, it's great to see, it's great to see a, a, such a turnout of people that are interested in the Passive House. Uh, it's definitely something that is, that is growing. Um, I think one of the most important things uh, from a geological background is that we get carbon under under uh, under control as, as soon as possible through whatever measure that we use. Um, if you are building a house for yourself or you're looking to uh, get involved with it, I'd highly recommend a passive house. Uh, we'll, we'll provide our feedback, what it's like building a house in a, in a subtropical environment. I would encourage you to seek out experts, uh, experts such as, you, uh, such as Andy, uh, and also I say thanks to John Monaghan from Ecolateral up here in Brisbane, who's done a lot of the groundwork for us um, along the way. If you are interested further, I would definitely encourage you to reach out. Um, go, through, go through WeatherTech, you're welcome to contact me at any stage. 
uh, or my team. And uh, if you want to see what the Vanquish project is about behind me, we've done, we're doing a uh, 10 or 12 part documentary series, which we're up to now, episode eight. So you can see it on YouTube or on our Instagram page or, uh, yeah, or reach out. But uh, apart from that, thanks to WeatherTech for hosting the event. Uh, and thanks, Andy, for being a great panellist. Thanks, mate. Okay, so look, thank you so much, everyone, for jumping on uh, board today. Uh, so our next Weather Text Talks is next week, benefits, uh, which is benefits of sustainable building. So that's Tuesday, the 26th of May at 12.30. So we've got a really strong calibre of discussion panellists again. I'll just run through those again. Planet Arc, Global Green Tag, uh, Merv, the Mervac Group, TS Constructions, as well as um, Dick Clark, who Andy works with from uh, Envirotexture. So don't miss out. You can register online uh, from today. Um, we're also continuing our CPD uh, webinars as well as all of our WeatherTech talks um, and our previous discussions have been recorded and are also available uh, on demand via our website. So thanks so much, Andy Please. and Carly. I think, I, think yeah. Andy might, I think Andy had a couple of finishing oh, comments. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Andy. <laughs> I've cut you off. Sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Um, look, no, uh, I was just, I was going to wrap up by a couple of blatant plugs. Um, so depending on what you do in the world and, and what made you turn up today, obviously depends on what you're interested in. Um, but for almost anybody uh, connecting with the Australian Passive Haste Association is a pretty good way to go. Um, there's a whole bunch of useful information on that website. There's a whole, there's a find a professional section if you need to find yourself a builder or a designer or, or whatever. Um, so there's a breadth of professionals around the country who can, who can help out, a whole bunch of them who are on the call today. Um, I won't name the names, but I saw a few of your names coming up. Um, so yes, by all means, reach out through that, through those means. Um, you can find me through our company websites. That's fine if you need to. Um, but the other big plug is that in October this year, all being good and well, and who the hell knows, but let's assume that we're going to work well. Um, the, um, the South Pacific Passive House Conference, um, which is an annual event that alternates between Australia and New Zealand. Um, it was, well, it is going to be in Sydney. It's going to be in Sydney in October. It was originally going to be at the end of this month, but for obvious reasons, they got postponed. Um, but right now, we're feeling confident that that might still happen um, and would be an in-person in, in event. Um, the conference is a fantastic event. It's been running for a fair few years. It's the first time it's been in Sydney. It's always been in Melbourne before. So that's a significant shift, and that's partly because of all the projects happening um, outside of Melbourne these days. So, um, yeah, have a look. Get your tickets early. Great, great plug. Thank you so much, Andy. No okay, right. guys, thanks so much for giving us your time today um, on such a popular topic. And I hope our viewers have uh, got a lot of it out, out today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks have a great everyone. afternoon. Bye. Thank you. See you later.